Oops, our study on the Shroud. Uh, this is going to be part six, and what we're going to be doing last last time, where we left off last time, uh, we completed Criterion A in my uh, for my various criteria for identifying a G belief authenticating event, uh, or a, you know a miracle or a sign from God. Uh, and I, our main argument is that the Shroud of Turin has various image features, and the event of their formation of these image features constitutes this, what we call, are calling a G-belief authenticating event. So what we're going to do in this time, now that we've completed Criterion A, for Part 6, I wanted to move on a little bit to Criterion B. And this is the criterion, um, if you go to the document that I provided you uh, in Part 4, I believe, the attached document with my 11 premise argument. And in premise 8, uh, that's the table where I have these criteria that we're using to judge the shroud. So now we're on Criterion B. So this is saying that the images and their formation are extraordinary. So in this podcast, we're going to be talking a little bit, giving sort of an introduction to, to what Criterion B is all about, uh, sort of detailing our method for applying Criterion B to the evidence from the Shroud. But then before we move on to our first image-forming hypothesis, uh, I'm going to save that. That's going to be the painting hypothesis by Walter McCrony. And I'm going to save that uh, next time for part seven. But what we're going to do is we're going to, after I do the introduction and explain a little bit about our method for Criterion B, we're going to take a time out. And David asked me to read through some of your guys' feedback because I've been getting a lot of feedback on the Shroud from various people. So I've, I've taken some of your comments and I'll read them out and, and, you know, sort of give a quick little response of what I think of what you guys had to say. So, so yeah, let's, first of all, let's get this Criterion B introduction, as well as, um, you know, methodology part completed. Okay, so you'll remember uh, from our, from what I mentioned in uh, part four, I think it was, uh, when I say, what does it mean for an event to be extraordinary? What, you know, or another word, you could use the same, you know, paranormal. Well, basically, Criterion B is trying to say that this, a reasonable person, again, the legal definition, an average person doing their you know, average knowledge and intelligence, doing their average due diligence to, to research about the, the shroud evidence, could, not necessarily would, but they could conclude that uh, this event can't be explained in terms of ordinary or, or currently well-known or established natural mechanisms uh, and laws operating solely on their own merits. That can include natural events. It doesn't have to be supernatural. Extraordinary events would include both. But it's just where we have an indication that it's not solely the natural mechanisms, the well-known or well-established natural mechanisms operating on their own initiative. So, as I said, uh, that that uh, the way we do this, this is sort of laid out in, in premise eight in that table under criterion B. And what what is uh, there are a couple of sub criterion of how we can identify an event uh, and and say that this type of event is extraordinary. And the first of these is what I call the uniqueness falsification criterion. So this is a, a falsification criterion. It's judged strictly on a pass or fail basis uh, on a balance of probabilities. So if it's more probably more probable than not that this event is unique to extraordinary or paranormal contexts, then it passes this criterion. If it's not, then it fails, and we can't say that the event is extraordinary. 
So, you know, what, what do I mean by extraordinary contexts? Well, again, it goes hand in hand with what we mean by extraordinary. You know, uh, it's it's things that indicate, it's contexts that indicate more, that go above and beyond the well-established laws of nature and, and natural mechanisms operating on their own initiative. So this would include things like supernatural religious miracles. It could also include things like ghosts or aliens. You know, Bigfoot would, would technically be... Uh, extraordinary, at least at this point in time. Who knows if if aliens are discovered one day or or something like that. It, they th- those may be incorporated at that time as well established, but as of right now, they're not a part of currently well known or established science or natural mechanism. By the way, even natural anomalies would qualify as being extraordinary as well, and and you know could possibly be said to be an extraordinary event. So, okay, so how do we relate this to the shroud images? Well, basically, I'm, I'm going to be arguing that the shroud images and their formation, the formation of these, you know, minimal relevant features, as we outlined in Criterion A, can be reasonably demonstrated to be unique in terms of their occurrence solely within an extraordinary or paranormal context. So in the first place, uh, it has to be said Everyone admits this, even shroud skeptics admit that the shroud's images are entirely unique. There are no other natural or artistic um, or, or even artificially reproduced images, either in the lab or, or in the field. You know, there's been various experiments. None of those images that are known about compare to the shroud's complete or full list of physical and chemical property. So, you know, it, it, in fact, it's, it's not even the case that these images are, are just unique to extraordinary context, but even within extraordinary context, the, these images are entirely unique, period. There's no other religious relic that has images like this. You know, if you look at a ghost painting or, some, you know, that's an extraordinary context, but it, still, these images don't, com- there's no other compar- comparable images to the shroud in any context. So this is passed with flying colors. There's no doubt. Even the shroud skeptics admit this much. Um, You know, they they have certain justifications as to why the shroud images are unique. So that, you know, don't think that they're going too far. But that that gets into, they, they basically deny that there is a sufficient opportunity for other images, like their their experiments, to be exact duplicates of the shroud but that that's not part of this criterion we don't worry about the sufficient opportunity part yet we ju- we're just saying as a falsification criterion the shroud images are entirely unique and as a religious artifact it automatically qualifies as taking place within an extraordinary or paranormal context uh, you know, it's a context that implies the involvement of God automatically. I mean, if it's a religious, if it's a miracle and it has a religious context, uh, it, you know, so it, it's 100 percent. It passes this criterion, this falsification criterion. But yeah, as to the issue of sufficient opportunity, we'll, you know, we'll get to that in later podcasts. That's that's part of our next sub criterion under criterion B. And this is the most important part. This is the sub criterion for extraordinariness of, of an event that we're going to be spending the bulk of our shroud series assessing you know with with analyzing all the various image forming mechanisms this is where what we're trying to say with this second sub criterion is that well it's not enough for an event to be unique to extraordinary paranormal context it also has to be proven that a reasonable person could have a sufficient reason uh, to doubt that explanations involving solely ordinary 
Um, so that, you know, natural mechanism. So by ordinary, that's what I mean, you know, currently well-established, well-known natural laws and mechanisms. Um, so a reasonable person should be able to doubt that ordinary natural mechanisms are equally possible explanations for the event. In other words, there has to be a sufficient reason for a reasonable person. There could be sufficient reason for a reasonable person to say that these all of these currently well-known and established natural mechanisms are improbable. There is a 49% probability or less that these events are, are true. So, yeah, in that way, there can't be said to be equally possible explanations for forming the Shroud's images. And there's at least a couple different ways that we can establish this. So the first one is, is the direct one. This is, like I said, we're going to be spending a heck of a lot of time by evaluating the, the image-forming mechanisms. But the first way is to show directly that, well, the various MRFs, or minimal relevant features of the Shroud's images, based on that, we know that all, we can show that all currently well-known or established ordinary natural mechanisms could at least seem to a reasonable person to have been demonstrated either practically or theoretically to be improbable explanations. And then the, the second one, second way is based on other reasons that make the event seem to be extraordinary outside of directly assessing uh, the event itself. So th this refers to various things such as the circumstantial evidence. Um, if you'll remember in one of the shows on Justin Brierley, Unbelievable, uh, I think it was Colin Humphreys, but yeah, he was trying to explain, well, you know, first of all, these... Um, uh, these miracles, the sun standing still, let's pretend that wasn't even supernatural. It was just a natural explanation. You know, it's an eclipse of the sun or something. Well, that, that's a mundane event. Or, no, no, but forget about the event itself. It's the circumstances, such as the timing of those events, unlikely things, one after the other, all natural phenomenon just happened to take place to allow Joshua, you know, within a, a religious, extraordinary context to fulfill his mission. It's in that case, you could argue based on the timing or another example in the movie Nativity Story. Um, you know, a couple planets and, and some other astro astronomical object, they all happen to coincide and coalesce right at the moment over Bethlehem, right over, right at the moment of Jesus' birth. Well, there's nothing supernatural about this. This does happen naturally. I mean, it's a known phenomenon. Um, so you can't really use the, the event itself to prove, oh, well, God must have been involved in this occurrence of this event. But you could argue, well, yeah, but it's the circumstances, it's the timing, it's the fact that they all coalesced over Bethlehem, specifically at the time of Jesus' Jesus's birth. Uh, that means it's a sign. You could try to argue that way. Well, that's a sign, or that makes this event extraordinary, the timing or the circumstances. Now, I know that you guys, um, in the attachment I gave you guys in part four, if you guys are using that, you guys, I did, because of, I was rushing and I have various notes under my newer tables and stuff, You got, I did send out a skeleton version that's a slightly older version. So, you know, for example, you'll see things that I, I've condensed it to two aspects. So I've included the, f the first one in your table, which is uniqueness to extraordinary context despite the sufficient opportunity. I'm now subsuming that under the first way of concluding an event is extraordinary. You know, uh, 
basically that that's a practical way. I'm saying that's a practical way of establishing all the currently well-known and established ordinary natural mechanisms are improbable or you know that someone could consume uh, say that conclude that they're improbable events. But just before we get into that, um, let's assess let's first start with the easy one, the, the theoretical ones. These are, are purely theoretical reasons and arguments that a person can have for thinking that, Natural mecha- all the natural mechanisms are improbable. One of the most obvious ways that philosophers like Richard Swinburne or Gary Habermas mention is, is obviously, well, if you can prove that they contravene an established law or laws of nature, um, well, that's one way of, that's probably the most obvious way of providing theoretical reasons as to why this, as to why certain natural mechanisms are implausible or could not be true or are improbable to be true. Um, but there could be other reasons um, outside of violating a law that of nature, which could show that various natural mechanisms are improbable. So, yeah, just note that while this theoretical aspect could be fulfilled, remember that falsification criteria. Maybe someone has theoretical reasons for thinking uh, natural mechanisms are improbable. Well, the skeptic could say, well, okay, well, our, our laws of nature, let, let's pretend I prove it contravenes a law of nature or something, you know, the strongest way to prove this. Well, maybe our laws of nature need updating or something like that. Um, you could try to argue that that way. Um, so this is where I think this added falsification criterion would come in. And God could indicate to us if there it looks like it contravenes a law of nature, an established law of nature, but it's not unique. It takes place within natural con- naturalistic context. Okay, well, based on that, we can say, okay, right away, we know it's not an extraordinary event. We that's an indicator that okay, well, our just our understanding of the laws of nature need updating. There's there's something there uh, that we need to look at. Um, so that's how the the two those two would sort of work together, and they have to both be fulfilled in order to work. You no, know, just just to give you an example of what I'm talking about, let you know some people in response to the resurrection, the appearance to the twelve, they'll argue well, collective hallucinations, simultaneous group hallucinations. Um, especially where where everyone shares the same hallucination together, those are improbable or impossible from what we know based on the literature on hallucinations and the scientific evidence. You know, hallucinations are individual subjective experiences, just like dreams. Uh, one other people can't share in that dream, and they they unless there's some sort of coordinating factor like drugs or hypnosis, they they won't have it. They won't have individual ones simultaneously. So these are theoretical reasons that someone would say the appearance of the 12, if it happened, is improbable to happen given natural mechanisms like group or collective hallucinations. But let's say, well, we have this example outside of an extraordinary context. For example, we have a group of people that all simultaneously hallucinated seeing Tom Cruise. Oh, that then this type of event would fail the false of uniqueness falsification criterion, and you could say, well, okay, our knowledge just must be wrong. It's we can't conclude it's an extraordinary event. Uh, you know, hold off judgment. We need to learn some more. So that that's how these two sub criteria would play off each other. However, there's the second way to which I alluded to, and that's the practical way of showing. You know, all the natural mechanisms are improbable. And this automatic, if this is fulfilled, this automatically fulfills the falsification criterion. But it, it's basically saying that the event in question is unique to extraordinary or paranormal contexts, right? That, that was our falsification criterion. But 
this is despite the fact that it has had a sufficient opportunity to be duplicated within a naturalistic context. And that's the key. That's where the Shroud skeptics will come in and, and they'll say, well, sure, the Shroud is, is unique uh, right now um, and, and it's within an, an extraordinary context. It's a religious relic. But that, that doesn't mean anything because it hasn't had a sufficient opportunity to be duplicated in a naturalistic context. And that's why we can't replicate everything fully. I mean, when, uh, when Joe Nickel does his Shroud experiments... Yeah, but that's relatively new. The shroud is centuries old, so who knows? Maybe some of the differences are because there's been centuries of wear and tear. Uh, you know, obviously we'll we'll get into more details on that front. But yeah, that that's where they would deny. They would deny that there's been this sufficient opportunity. So that aspect needs to be established if we're making a practical argument for the shroud's unique based on the shroud's uniqueness as to disproving all the currently well-known or well-established natural mechanisms. Now, with sufficient opportunity, well, how, how would we demonstrate that? And there are actually a couple different ways for that as well. So the first sense is, is the obvious. This is just sort of nat, what I call natural opportunity. So, you know, while there's been millions of artistic paintings and artistic sculptures or and, stu- and icons or and stuff like that, so this is... Uh, natural opportunity. Likewise, if you believe there's a dead body, it was produced by some sort of natural mechanism as opposed to artistic, uh, naturalistic, let's say. Um, you know, a dead body was rotting in, in a burial shroud. Well, there have been millions of people buried th- in the Middle East. There's, you know, Muslims are still buried in burial shrouds today. Well, there's been a heck of a lot of sufficient natural opportunity. Yeah, uh, so that that could be a way of making that argument. That actually doesn't work, as we'll find out, but uh, just giving you a sense of how uh, someone could attempt to argue for sufficient opportunity based on natural opportunities for duplication within a naturalistic context. You know, let's say we have King Henry VIII has a picture uh, by by Master Holbein, and it has all these properties of the shroud. Or King Henry was buried in a burial shroud, and we found that burial shroud, and it has images on the shroud. That would be natural opportunity for duplication. However, there's also what I call artificial opportunity. So these would refer to the fact that various scientists have done dozens of experiments, scientific experiments, both in the lab and in the field, in the actual field as well, as we'll find out trying to duplicate the shroud images using various natural methods and mechanisms. All of these have failed. So one could try to make an argument, well, there's been sufficient opportunity based on these artificial opportunities, you know, various scientific experiments people have done to try to duplicate the shroud. Uh, So that's how that that would work there. Okay, and uh, yep, I've already kind of explained that. And the second way is that circumstantial circumstantial argument or or any other reasons as to why someone could conclude the Shroud's image formation is extraordinary. And, you know, I I already sort of gave you the example of what I mean with the timing from the nativity story. As, As we'll see, there is a circumstantial argument. It's not about timing, but there's another circumstantial argument that I think is successful based on the shroud evidence. But we'll we'll get to that later on in our series, much much later. Um, but yeah, it, that'll that will be an argument coming up that I as one of the reasons I think the shroud evidence is probably an ex, an extraordinary event. Okay, so so let's just go back to our first our first th- way um, where we're going to be spending the the bulk of our time. Can we show that the shroud's image formation? 
along with all their minimal relevant features, that all currently well-known and established ordinary naturalistic mechanisms are improbable. Um, how, how are we going to go about assessing whether the Shroud's evidence can fulfill this way of proving extraordinariness? In the first place, what we're going to do is we're going to split up the various image-forming mechanisms or hypothes hypotheses that have been proposed. Um, and there are really only three major categories uh, that even most Shroud experts put it, break it up this way. So the first are the ordinary artistic theories. You know, some kind of there's some kind of human artistic technique or effort that's being added to the mix. You know, like a painting or uh, you know uh, powder rubbing techniques or or you know using a statue and creating a scorch or a bas relief technique. The, these are the these are the first mechanisms that we're going to be evaluating, starting with Walter McCrony's the painting hypothesis, which is the oldest the oldest one. There's also what uh, the ordinary naturalistic hypotheses. So these are hypotheses that postulate the presence of a human corpse and just natural mechanisms, laws and, and mechanisms operating on their own in ways that are just consistent with the natural law. There's no outside interference by human, uh, God, by humans, God, or any other agent. There's no purposeful intent to create these images. It just sort of you put a body in the shroud, it, it just sort of happens. So, you know, the, these are going to be things like the direct contact hypothesis or, or gas diffusion, vapograph, stuff like that. Um, and then the third category is the ones related to the ones that I think is true, extraordinary theories um, or even supernatural theories, but extraordinary. Let's let, It doesn't have to be supernatural, but, you know, things like radiation from a body, um, there's another one related to electrostatic with Giulio Fonti, um, the corona discharge hypothesis. Well, so yeah, these are the three basic categories. And I just want to make a note here that our argument that we're making, it doesn't require me to prove um, or even mention the extraordinary mechanisms at all. We, we could throw out this category. Remember, all I have to do is prove that all the ordinary natural mechanisms, so the, those artistic ones and the naturalistic theories, are improbable, and then I've succeeded and met this sub-criterion. I'm going to throw in some consideration of the extraordinary theories. I think you all know I, I sort of favor this neutron flux hypothesis that Mark Antonacci, he calls it the historically consistent hypothesis, and I think that's the best one, that's the one I lean towards. But let's pretend that's garbage. Uh, let's throw out all these extraordinary... I don't, I don't have to explain how some supernatural or extraordinary mechanism created the shroud images. I don't care. As long as I can rule out all the currently ordinary naturalistic ones, that's, that's good enough. That meets this criteria. That's all I need. Again, we're not debating the criteria. It doesn't matter whether the, my criteria are justified or not for... You know, that's outside the scope of our Shroud series. I'm just saying this is what my criteria is. This is what we're trying to prove. So, yeah, just bear just bear that in mind as we go. And, you know, I, I will mention extraordinary theories just so you have an all-encompassing knowledge of some of, you know, what, what are some of the things that Christian or pro-Shroud proponents have thrown out there, such as that neutron flux hypothesis. And just a, a quick thing, obviously I, I am going to be selecting out some... Uh, some theories or because you know ordinary naturalistic theories that are just ridiculous I'm, I'm sorry you're an idiot if you think that this is true so this is something like 
some some people have suggested that the shroud images were created in the medieval ages using modern laser technology. You're dumb if you think that's true. I'm not going to waste my time discussing something so stupid. So it's only going to be historically feasible mechanisms that I'm going to be addressing here. Ones that you know have a, at least a, at face value a feasible chance of of being possible explanations that that could have been employed by a medieval or earlier artist. Okay, um, so. Yeah, so as I said, we're going to be starting with the ordinary artistic theories. Um, we're going to assess each theory, uh, remember criterion A, in the light of how they perform in producing images of uh, with all of the minimal relevant features. That's why we outlaid all those features, you know, Ken, and we're going to grade the, the how the hypothesis performs in relation to those minimal relevant features, or MRFs. So, you know, if it, if it can account for it, great, it'll get a green check mark. Um, and I'm going to be providing a source for you. It's going to be my Excel file. So I, I sort of did an Excel table listing out all of the hypotheses that I studied and all the features. Um, and then I sort of gave them, you know, a green check mark if it if they could fulfill the feature. I would give them a yellow question mark if there's a questionable status, if, if it's sort of iffy, we're not sure. Um, and then a red X if the hypothesis fails to, to recreate this feature or it wouldn't be able to to recreate that shroud feature. And then there's the purple circle. It just means it's neutral. We assume in favor of the shroud skeptic, any ordinary natural hypothesis uh, that has a, a purple circle. It's basically the same as giving it a green check mark. But I, I differentiated that because it's, it's something that was either I didn't want to waste time studying, it didn't matter, uh, or I need more information on or shroud researchers say well we need more information on on this before we can make a determination so that's what the purple circle means in the chart um, there's also an orange thing with double question marks um, that just means because certain um, certain theories are, are umbrella categories of mechanisms so there's you know like five different uh, versions of a particular theory like for, for example with the direct contact hypothesis this is an umbrella category but there have been at least four or five different adherents with various versions of this type of mechanism that we're going to be addressing um, you know or, or with powdered pigments or powder rubbing or dusting artistic techniques, there's at least three that uh, we're going to be addressing under that one main category or umbrella category of mechanism. And just, you know, if if we fail to mention a particular feature under a given theory, let, let's say under a certain theory, I, I just neglect to mention superficiality at all. What we'll do is we we assume I'm doing this because we're going to assume that the, the hypothesis can account for that feature. If, if I don't mention it, or neglect to mention it under a given theory, just assume the theory can account for it. Okay, so only features where it's questionable or a failure status needs to be discussed. Now, you know, I, I might break that rule and just sort of mention ones where the theory can can pass the hypothesis if there's like an interesting note or or some reason, but it, that's not necessarily the case. So if, if you find, you know, we get to direct contact theories and I skip the image superficiality, we're assuming that that hypothesis can account for that feature. You know, assume in favor of the shroud skeptic. Okay, and then our second step of criterion B under this, um, you know, proving all the mechanisms are improbable, will be to do an overall cumulative case 
considerations and conclusion. So how are we going to do that? So once we've assessed all of the hypotheses in light of the features, at the end of each hypothesis, hypothesis category, I'm going to do an overall conclusion where I use the inductive or inference to the best explanation criteria. You know, scholars like Mike Lacona have used these or William Lynn Craig um, with, you know, the historical evidence to the resurrection, for example, in order to in inductively assess uh, the probability of these various hypotheses. So, yeah, we're, we're going to be enlisting the same criteria that uh, Mike Lacona gets from historian C.B. McCulloch. Yeah, that, that's going to be things like plausibility. Remember, there can be theoretical or the uniqueness is a practical way of saying, showing that a certain hypothesis is implausible. If, you know, if there's been a sufficient opportunity for a natural mechanism to produce similar images and it, yet it hasn't, then you could say, well, based on that practical argument, such theories are implausible. So that uh, there's also explanatory scope, explanatory power. Uh, the theories have to be less ad, the less ad hoc, the better. You know, don't don't employ too many ad hoc components. And finally, as a bonus criterion, the criterion of illumination. Yeah, so basically I'm going to provide a table. That, that'll be in an attachment as well, um, providing my table of all the theories with their grading of either pass, neutral, or fail in relation to these overall inductive criteria for evaluating that image-forming mechanism or hypothesis. Obviously, a pass would mean that it's more probable than not that it fulfills this criterion. Neutral means it's 50-50. It could or might not or not able to make an assessment you know we're, we're just assuming it's an equal possibility and then a fail quite obviously means it's a fail it's 49 percent uh, or less probability that um, this hypothesis will fulfills this criterion it's important to note that uh, not all of these criteria are equally weighty or have the same significance in terms of proving a naturalistic mechanism is improbable. It's actually in, automatically, I think, the first three. If, if a criterion, if a hypothesis is in, can be shown or argued to be implausible, to lack explanatory scope, or to lack explanatory power in some way, that makes the hypothesis improbable automatically. However, it, it might be that a hypothesis is ad hoc or lacks illumination, but that still doesn't mean it's an improbable hypothesis. So it would depend on the specific arguments or reasons under those criterion alone as to whether we can determine if a hypothesis is uh, is improbable or not. Okay, so uh, just what are these criteria that we're going to be using? Let's just give a brief mention. Uh, these are these are the definitions as given by Mike Lacona, who's copying McCulloch. So plausibility means that the hypothesis or the image-forming mechanism must be implied by or at least consistent with to a greater degree and by a greater number and variety of other accepted truths. So in response to our background knowledge, you know, does it comply with our, our background knowledge, our theoretical as well as practical uh, knowledge of, you know, do, does can this mechanism create images like this? Uh, does our background knowledge support this? Explanatory scope is obviously a criterion that accounts for the, the quantity of image facts or the, the number of minimal relevant features that a hypothesis can account for. Obviously, any equally possible image-forming mechanism 
that attempts to explain the shroud images has to account for all of the minimal relevant features. Any image forming mechanism that can't account for one or more of these minimal relevant features is considered improbable or a failure. Next, we have the explanatory power criterion, my favorite. Uh, this is the criterion that it looks at the quality of the explanation or the hypothesis in terms of explaining the relevant facts. In this case, again, those minimal relevant features on the shroud images. So the hypothesis that explains the data with the least amount of effort, vagueness, or ambiguity has the greater explanatory power. So if any theory has a questionable status on a certain fee minimal relevant feature, that could be said, okay, well, that's a, an element of vagueness or ambiguity. And if there are enough of those, that might amount to saying, well, the, the hypothesis is improbable. Um, but obviously, the, the best way is if it gets a red X. If it's a failure and can't explain it, it takes too much effort or forcefulness to get this image forming mechanism to explain a given feature, that shows it's improbable right away. Next is the less ad hoc criterion, or in Latin, certeris paribus. So this sort of includes, you know, things like the scientific criterion of simplicity, or maximum parsimony. Um, you know, you'll, you'll know it under Occam's razor, and this is basically the simplest explanation is probably correct. Um, and any hypothesis that employs less ad hoc components or non-evidenced assumptions is superior to ones that have more non-evidenced assumptions. And with this criterion, it, it is, I, I don't think it's automatic. If, if uh, a theory fails to fulfill this criterion or if it does employ non-evidenced assumption, that, that doesn't automatically make the theory improbable because yeah, I mean, it, it is possible, you know, that our world is complicated sometimes. It's not always the case that the simplest explanation is true. Um, you know, history proves that events can be complicated and or some theories just have to employ non-evidenced assumptions in order to work. We, we just have a paucity of, of data requiring assumptions. So, yeah, I, I think it will depend on the nature and the amount of non-evidenced assumptions that could possibly allow us to rule out certain uh, explanations as being improbable based on this criterion's consideration alone. Uh, but it's not automatically the case that, it, that a hypothesis is improbable because it's ad hoc. Finally, there's illumination, and this is more of a bonus criterion. It, it basically says that illumination is filled when a given hypothesis provides additional insight on other true but secondary facts. But they're not, you know, secondary facts don't have to be directly relevant to the issue of image formation or the formation of these minimal relevant features directly. Um, so these, these are secondary facts that are established with a high degree of certainty or confidence and or provides a possible solution to other problems outside of the scope of one's hypothesis or that don't confuse areas of knowledge that are held with confidence in other areas. So yeah, th this is a bonus. I'm, I'm not gonna, it, it doesn't really come in as a factor as a, too much. I think there's only like one or two theories that I actually bring it up. But yeah, j just as I said, recognize that these various criterion have various uh, significances, um, know what the criterion are and understand our process of for evaluating each theory. We, we first assess them in light of the criteria, then we apply these five inference criteria for our overall conclusion in saying that a hypothesis is improbable or not. 
Um, okay, uh, so I think you guys are, are going to be happy. that That's it for my methodology and, and introduction to Criterion B. From now on, and we're going to get into our first hypothesis, which is Walter McCrone's painting hypothesis, and start to apply our method, our method of Criterion B to actual hypotheses. But that's going to wait for part seven next time. We're, we're going to get straight into that. As for right now, though, it's uh, you know time for a timeout. Uh, let's have some fun. Uh, we're going to... David asked me to do some listener feedback podcasts and respond to some of the feedback I've been getting from you guys. And on that front, uh, the first feedback is, is uh, one of the first that I got. And it, this is from Tony in the comment sections. So Tony says, good work, Dale. Uh, I finished the first two podcasts on The Shroud, and I'm eagerly awaiting the next installment. No pressure. And then uh, later on, he also says, sort of regarding the actual content, he, he says, I would say that the content of your podcast is maybe a little too heavy, but it shows how passionate you are about it. Uh, I wouldn't hold it against you. Okay, so thank you, Tony. I, I appreciate that. Um, yes, it, The Shroud is something I'm definitely passionate about. Um, I think it is great evidence that needs to be taken seriously by everyone. Uh, whether you come out agreeing with, with my conclusions or not, it's not something that you can just ignore or dismiss. Uh, you do so at your own peril. Um, and yeah, Tony is someone that I, I really like. I, I've sent my own Shroud chapter to him through through email personally. Um, but yeah, I, I like he has this genuine interest and, and sincere uh, desire to learn more about about the shroud. So yeah, you know, Tony's one of the the people that I have in mind when I'm making my shroud series here. Now, as to your comment in the first place, um, yep, as you know, part three and four are already up. So hopefully you're you're making progress there. Um, but yeah, I, I I get that. I think you're right. The material can get a bit heavy. I mean, it is very technical. It it involves various scientific disciplines, and so yeah, I I, I do my best to try and translate some of the jargon that's in some of these scientific peer-reviewed journal articles and what the evidence is for the shroud you know some of it i, I don't understand myself I, I would be lying if i under, if i said oh yeah i understand rucker's chi-square analysis for the statistical analysis of the shroud I, I understand the point i understand how he gets there but i have no idea if if the mathematical equation that he's using if he's applying that correct if he's using the calculation part correctly or or maybe he's messed that up. I, I have no idea. I, I'm just sort of trusting that he's doing the math part right. Um, but I understand the, the result of you know the the purpose, the end result of that study. Given that the math is correct, well, that means the carbon fourteen da- dates based on the statistical analysis of the results prove that the shroud is unreliable. So. Yeah, it can get technical and hard to understand. Um, I hope I'm doing a good job. I'm trying to strike that balance. It, you know, it's kind of like walking a tightrope at times. But yeah, you know, that's that's why I want to do the lecture rather than a, a quick debate where it's like you can only do so much. Um, because this way I can really flesh out some of the features, explain it in, in a way that's more understandable. But at the same time, I'm not leaving stuff out that would cause people to be misled in, in terms of the evidence, you know, be, or get confused by technobabble or something. So yeah, the, the next one is another positive one. Again, uh, Sarah. So this comes from Sarah. Uh, she's another one that I sent the chap- my chapter to, uh, another one that's hungry, and, and you know, I, I appreciate her feedback and her listening to the show. But um, her, here's her comment. So 
Uh, Dale, you've been super diligent in your own research. I've just listened to the episodes and think you do a great job of presenting the information. Uh, it doesn't come across as biased, and uh, I, I like that. Thank you. I try my, try my best there. Um, but yeah, and you appear to make a very good case. Well done. I have no idea, having not done the research myself, how to evaluate the what uh, evaluate it. And um, I, I won't be investing massive amounts of time. You know, sadly, I, I don't have a spare year to take off and ponder it. But you clearly know a huge amount about it, about the Shroud, and do provide a compelling case. And it was interesting, so thank you. And I, I looked to see if you had linked to the artwork. The So she's referring to the art history argument as well. You referenced those coins. So that's, I, I think, not. I don't think she's talking about the Pontius Pilate coins. I think she's talking about the... Justinian coins where it has various odd features, uh, you know, and Fontys evaluated that to a 99.9% uh, probability that the guy who made the coins was copying the shroud. But for some reason, when you clicked on that link, the website crashed uh, the entire computer. Probably Satan, don't you think? Well, Sarah, no. I, I think that was actually David uh, Johnson. I, I, I saw him snickering about something that day. I didn't know what it was at the time, but... Now I know. I think it was blame David. It was David who crashed. He's responsible for that. But uh, um, okay. So, um, so yeah. And also, Sarah mentioned one objection as well. So she was saying that the only hypothesis that I see as being far fetched in her uh, in her humble opinion is the idea that it's a miracle, but a medieval one. You know, so that getting into where I say I don't think the dating is relevant either way. Pretend it's medieval. If it's a miracle, that's good. I, I need nothing else, you know. But this just seems weird to her, and it doesn't sound intuitively right uh, for Sarah. Uh, either it's the real thing or don't bother. A halfway house miracle helps no one. So, yeah, I, on this front, I just want to say, for, firstly, thank you so much for the appreciation. As I said, I, I really like these positive comments, and I appreciate that you get that either I'm not coming across as biased, or at least, at the very least, I'm trying my best to mitigate against that and present the case as fairly as I can. But as to your, your issue, yeah, I can understand. I, I mean, I was even going over it with my own brother, and he was saying, well, it's a little weird. Um, he, he could get what I was saying, and he said that's it's valid, but it just seems a little weird. You know, it's it's a burial shroud. It it seems like if it's a miracle that it's it's wanting to say this belongs to Jesus. That's certainly what all the pro shroud Christians have thought over the centuries. Um, even you know, even Gary Habermas, when I was telling him about this, he he was even giving me a hard time at first. Um, but then I, I really converted him around and, and explained to him by, you know, sort of saying, well, in the first place, God can do miracles at any time in human history. I, th I think we would agree with that much, right? It, I mean, modern day Christians assess modern miracle healing claims, regardless of whether that stuff is nonsense or true. The fact that a skeptic it, will take that seriously means that you recognize, well, God can do miracles at any time in history. If he can do it today, he can do it in the medieval ages. If he could do it back in Jesus' day, again, he could do it at any other time in history. So I don't think the chronological aspect is the problem. It's probably the context because you, while it's a burial shroud, uh, uh, it seems to be that, you know, it's weird that it wouldn't it be belong to Jesus. Why would God just poof and a burial shroud of Jesus would pop up? Well, again, I, I can I can understand that, but I think you're going beyond what, what we're allowed to 
uh, to conclude if you rule out a miraculous evidence because of that factor alone. I mean, there could be any number of reasons, Molinistically speaking, why an omniscient God would do that specific miracle at that specific time. You know, uh, there, there could be any, may, maybe the shroud wouldn't have been preserved if God created a miraculous painting or something as opposed to a shroud. Certain medieval people would have destroyed it, but because, oh, because it was a burial shroud, that forced them to think, oh, this is actually Jesus' burial shroud. You know, they made that assumption, that leap in logic, and because of that, it was preserved into the modern era when we did, did all these scientific tests and allowing people like me to become Christians. And who knows what what else may happen in the future. So with an omniscient God, we just, we're not in a position to make that kind of a judgment, I think. I think there could be multiple reasons as to why God did that particular miracle at that particular time. And if if you're trying to say, well, it's a, a bear shot, it, it, if you want to say it's more probable than not that it has to go back to Jesus, um, I think you're going beyond the the data. I mean, the, the butterfly type effect argument uh, just really invalidates this to me. And I think you just have to be agnostic and open to the evidence. I mean, if we can prove it's a miracle, that alone is good enough. I, I wouldn't deny the scientific evidence for a miracle of God just because, yeah, but it's medieval. So, yeah, that's my take on that. Okay, so now we're going to go on to the skeptical side with Michael Brady. Um, so let's see what Michael Brady says. Dale, my goodness. But this episode, he, he only saw part one, so I don't know what he makes of other podcasts. But uh, this episode offered textbook examples of cognitive bias, motivated reasoning, special pleading, and moving the goalpost. The church, who had every reason to support the authenticity of the burial cloth of Jesus, identified the Shroud of Turin as a pious fraud when it first arrived on the scene. Mm, well, <laughs> we'll find out. Um, will there be any examination of skeptical arguments against the Shroud's provenance in the second and third episodes? Uh, so, uh, taking the last part first, yeah, uh, I did. Uh, hopefully you listened to part three. Part four has a whole host of them, as does, or no, part five will have a whole host of them, but part four has one with the quasi-negative. By the way, were, were you listening to part one? Uh, Carbon-14 is a counter-feature that this, I spent more than half the program addressing and focusing on a specific argument by Shroud's skeptics against the Shroud's provenance. So, yeah, I think I think you need to be a little bit more fair in your, you know, less biased in your assessment of what I was doing there. However, does Michael have a point uh, about my bias and and that sort of thing? Well, in the first place, yes, uh, um, I do admit everyone, every human being on planet Earth is biased. I I do admit that I think the shroud is authentic. Um, I have that bias. I can't go against what I think is true, and so. Yes, I, I do my best to present the other side as fairly as I can. I, I present their arguments and I give, you know, reasons as to why I think it's wrong. But at the end of the day, I'm a human being. So, yeah, you know, I, I have biases, um, but I try my best with my methods, uh, presenting the skeptical arguments and interacting with them, at least to mitigate against that sort of bias. Also, you, you mentioned I'm moving the goalposts. So, 
uh, again, he, he doesn't interact really or give any sort of hints as to what he's talking about, but I suspect with moving the goalposts, he was talking about the same sort of thing Sarah was about, uh, I think the dating is irrelevant. Um, now, moving the goalpost, what, what is that? It's an informal fallacy in which evidence presented in response to a specific claim is dismissed because some greater evidence is demanded. So that is that uh, there's an attempt made uh, to score a goal. You know, you set up the goalposts in advance, uh, basically saying, well, the shroud it belongs to Jesus. This is the original goalpost. And then when you try to score your goal point with your carbon 14 by proving that it's medieval, well, I shift the goalposts uh, to exclude that attempt. Forget about the dating. Uh, this is just utter nonsense, Michael. You don't know what you're talking about. I don't care about the dates. So I, I never cared whether it's medieval or not. I don't think that's a relevant consideration. My original goalposts were always there, and I just I tried to justify why I have that. Um, so this is just nonsense. I don't care. I, I'm I'm arguing that Christians like Gary Habermas, who who did establish, who want to establish that there's this goalpost. I'm arguing that their original goalpost was always in the wrong position before you start kicking your goals the goalpost should always have been there uh you know if if there's uh if we're playing soccer and there's a goalpost up uh in the wrong spot because it's too close to dangerous power lines or something uh then yeah you're going to move those goalposts and you're justified in doing so so i've moved my goal goalposts in advance prior to playing the game and i've justified why i've put those goalposts there i think that people that place the goalposts where you want them to be are just biased and they're assuming uh, okay I, I think they're assuming they're falsely assuming things are necessary for the case for the shroud so yeah um everything i did there was fair um i stand by what i what i do by saying that the dating is irrelevant okay tyler b now gets in touch and he basically says Please, can, can you get a skeptic on your Shroud series? So far, it's been very too one-sided. Now, in the first place, I do admit, uh, Tyler, okay, so I, I did respond to you. Um, and yes, I think you're right that, yeah, I'm presenting the case as I see it and as much as the evidence as I can to give you everyone a well-rounded education as to what the Shroud evidence is. And uh, that, you know, like I said, that that will entail my presenting some, some bias, I, I think, I'm biased against the carbon-14 scientists. I, I have no respect for their incompetence, at least the leaders, you know, in picking one sample over multiple samples. They should have known better. This was a problem known about in advance, but they didn't address it, or, or their bias against the results of STIRP and eliminating their involvement with other scientific tests that would have gotten us data. Uh, it, it angers me. It annoys me that they impeded science, our scientific progress in this case just as it annoys me that the catholic church is impeding our progress let us do a stirp too i you know I, I want to get in there get as much data and find out the truth as conclusively as possible but yeah I, I admit my my bias does come in and it could be could be the case that it's essential to get a shroud skeptic to act as a counterweight um, I, you know, I'm reminded of a debate with Shabir Ali uh, and William Lane Craig, where Shabir Ali, I, I've worked with him. He's a he's a great guy. I, I find I, you know, I consider him a personal friend as well. When I was studying the Islamic evidence, and he brought to his debate with William Lane Craig a half a half a coffee mug, half a cup, and he was saying, you know, that's what these debates are all about. You know, I present one side, 
and then the other side presents theirs, and then together we have a full cup. We have a full understanding so you can, we presented that full case so you guys can understand. You know, as I mentioned to you, I'm, I'm doing my best to do that though already. In, in my lecture series, I'm presenting the counter features or the arguments by the skeptics. Every single one that I'm aware of and that can I can squeeze into the you know the one hour format but obviously I need to explain why I think those skeptical arguments by and large are garbage why I don't buy them and why I'm not persuaded by them but yeah I present my sources I present my reasons so it's there for you to consider that said um, I have been in talks with Andrew Andrew is a skeptic uh, of the shroud and He's agreed at some point, at various points, to, to come on and do an actual Skeptics and Seekers show on the Shroud. So, you know, you'll get some sort of challenges on, on my arguments there. I'm open to anyone else. If, if you know, if anyone else, if, if you yourself want to come on and do Skeptics and Seekers and challenge some of the things I say on the Shroud. But, yeah, I, I think it's important. I, I want to do the lecture series. It's better because I can present the fuller case, a more substantial and... Uh, yeah, a fuller case presenting and, and fleshing out the details rather than just in a debate format. It Well, okay, I've got five minutes to make my case and, and I'm getting interrupted by by someone so I, I lose track of what I want to say. This, no, I get to do a thought out, uh, a more thought out, a fully fleshed out case for the Shroud evidence to present to you guys first, but then we'll bring in the challenges from people who don't believe what I'm saying with Andrew or if I can get a Shroud expert like Joe Nickel or something like that who's skeptical to come on or Lu Luigi Garlicelli, um, you know, I think I, I have his email in, in certain articles. So, yeah, I, I can reach out to him, see if I'll, I'll get him. Um, I'm also bringing on Barry Schwartz. Uh, he, he thinks the Shroud's authentic, but he would be a skeptic in terms of my arguments that the shroud is supernatural or, or is a G-belief authenticating event. So, you know, maybe you could consider him a skeptical counterpoint on the show. Um, but yeah, I, I stand by the fact that we need this lecture series, um, which can be supplemented by, by debate. And I stand by my record. I, I really think that I've done my best to present as much as the evidence, pro and con, as fairly as I can. So, you know, I... I I, I hope, I'm sorry that it comes across as being too one-sided. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. I provide the sources. Um, that's all I can do there. Okay, so moving on to Enoch Root. He says this, uh, I think it all rests on a very long string of maybes and what-ifs, uh, referring to my case for the historical provenance of the Shroud. Uh, later on, he, he then says, Okay, so Dale, you seem to accept that there is a lot of the evidence is largely circumstantial. Um, yeah, uh, there are a lot of circumstantial arguments that I presented, but um, that's not invalid just because it's circumstantial. You know how many people get convicted just on circumstantial evidence alone? I mean, there comes a point when the circumstantial evidence can tip over to the point where you're unreasonable for not believing something. So yeah, like the, you know, things like the textual evidence, the textile evidence for the shroud, well, that can prove it's consistent with the first century AD date. Uh, consistent with a, you know, with Jesus being buried in it in Jerusalem, that that doesn't prove a direct link to Jesus. It's circumstantial in that way. That doesn't mean it's irrelevant, especially when combined with the overall cumulative case. And and based on the cumulative case, circumstantial and direct evidences combined linking it to Jesus, I think it's more probable personally. So yeah, I would agree. There there are no clinchers in in his view. 
Um, same with me. Apart from the sidereum, possibly, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say there are any clinchers, but there are good reasons, I think. Um, and then he says, a sophisticated forgery seems to me like a live option. So we cannot know that no one else went through a similar ordeal to Jesus. That is just an assumption uh, by me. Um, we do not. So that, that's a reference to um, the main, the first argument I give in part three, where I'm saying, well, the wounds and injuries um, are historically accurate, and there's only one person. I gave Robert Buckland, the forensic expert and pathologist, quote that there's only one person known to have gone over this sequence of injuries, and that's Jesus. So it's reasonable to assume it's probably Jesus and not some random guy made up to look like him. Uh, so uh, Enoch goes on, we do not know the specifics of what happened to every single crucified person. However, despite my skepticism, though, I do think that the belief that the shroud uh, belongs to Christ is justified on rational grounds. Take that, Alan. Um, but <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, you know, he, he says it's certainly an intriguing and remarkable object that warrants every bit of attention it can get. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. And just a couple points that I wanted to, to bring um, from this feedback. So I think that we do need to recognize there is some truth to what Enoch says. There are speculative elements. There are circumstantial elements that form part of the evidence that I'm presenting to you guys. But that's me trying to be as comprehensive as I can. I want you guys to be aware that there's a gap between 1204 and 1355, which requires speculation. I want you guys to be aware that, sure, I can prove the carbon-14 dating is unreliable, but then that's not, you can't just leave it there and throw that away and forget about it. Um, that That's still evident. We still got this scientific evidence that needs to be accounted for. And that's where I was presenting my four proposals. You know, that we can't prove any one of those is true. Uh, it, it's speculation, at, the, at least not at this point. It's speculation or circumstantial evidence. So be it. That, that's part of the overall case of what we have with the shroud. But that said, it's not all circumstantial evidence. The sudarium is, is direct evidence, in my opinion. The Rucker's statistical argument proving that there's a 98.6% probability of systematic bias in the carbon-14 dating, proving it is therefore unreliable and should not be using it, used as evidence, proving positively the skeptics' claims that the Shroud is medieval. These are rather conclusive arguments. The, these aren't circumstantial. These are direct, and they prove very strongly that you shouldn't, that a reasonable person shouldn't think the Shroud is medieval. So yeah, and, you know, I, I appreciate Enoch mentioning that the Shroud is worthy of attention and that it can be justified on rational grounds. As you guys know from Criterion B, remember, I, I'm just saying that a, my argument depends on saying that a reasonable person could be justified or warranted rationally in concluding that the Shroud is a Jeep Leaf authenticating event. I'm not, I'm not trying to argue that all reasonable people have to make that same conclusion. I, I actually do think that reasonable people can disagree that the shroud constitutes a G-Belief authenticating event based on my arguments or reasons. However, if I can establish, as Enoch admits, that it, a reasonable person could, well, then my argument from undue confusion and God not allowing undue confusion in my 11 premise argument, that's where it takes up and then provides me the warrant for, th for thinking that Christianity is true. So, yeah, thank, thank you, Enoch. I appreciate that. You, you're basically establishing my point that the shroud evidence can f f potentially 
fulfill my criteria as I have laid it out. All right, so now we come to my good buddy, uh, Alan, the Shroud Skeptic. And um, I have to say, I, I think of him as my own personal Shroud nemesis uh, of sorts there, because uh, we've had uh, several interactions on the Unbelievable boards. You know, there, there's so many comments to choose from, so I'm not going to read out any specific one yet, because I, I know he has an upcoming critique that he's going to give based on the actual evidence. He hasn't really had a chance to, to provide any substantive points yet, apart from maybe a, one or two throwaway things. Um, but yeah, basically he denounces all my podcasts and evidence uh, for the Shroud is utter dribble, uh, 100% garbage. He used a different word there, but um, yeah, you know, there's not one ounce of evidence or reason to back Dale up. But yeah, um, you know, he, he's the type of person, when I think of Shroud skeptics, you know, being arrogant or boastful in their claims, Alan's the guy I, I think of, you know, he's making very clean it's obviously a fake any child can instantly recognize this is an artistic forgery after a couple minutes and you know stop many quotes to this sort of effect um and don't don't um get deluded by don't uh, get tricked by my claiming alan as my nemesis i i actually do like alan and i, I respect him I, I admit that he does have some good knowledge i've seen in other posts you know months back that he does have some knowledge albeit from a skeptical perspective only i, I do think alan is ignorant when it comes to the positive side that the actual experts like stirp scientists have proven about the shroud scientifically yes i'm saying proven i, I know he doesn't like me saying science can't prove anything but that's the way i talk but yeah i, I think so i think he is not so knowledgeable for, for example i mentioned you know that an artist can't create the blood stains and oh this is uh, ridiculous uh, um you know of course they can or something like that but then I point out, well, what about the invisible serum retraction rings that have been scientifically proven to be on the shroud using ultraviolet fluorescence studies? This was done back in uh, uh, 1978 with STIRP. And Alan was complete, seemed uh, to be completely oblivious to this. He didn't know what I was talking about. He's, he's like, invisible? What, what are you talking about here? So, yeah, th this is sort of the typical shroud skeptic. They, they do their little research from their skeptical side, but they don't take cons they don't consider the positive side, and that because of that, they don't have this round full round, uh, full or rounded out understanding of all of the evidence when making their conclusions. And because of that, they make these boastful, erroneous claims. But you know, it, it ultimately results from ignorance, I think, on their part. But yeah, we'll we'll see what what Alan has to say on that because um, he he is going to give a devastating critique at some point. So. Uh, with specific details responding to my substantial evidences. So, yeah, I look forward to seeing what he, what he's got there. Now, one, one thing, uh, just on the substantive end, because I, I said Alan did at least now provide one or two little bits, and really this is on the issue of carbon-14 dating. So here, he, he first in the first place, he sort of chides me because, uh, you know, I, I bring up young Earth creationists, you know, those three assumptions for radiometric dating to work, and I say young Earth creationists, question the first can question the first two which which they do it is possible you know and he's like well what about isochron dating that tackles the first assumption where we can know the original amounts well no I, i'm sorry young earth creationists know about isochron dating and they have counters whether they're good or not you know you can decide or or he says the rate of decay we know that's always the true again these boastful claims but young earth creationists there there have been scientific studies showing uh by stanford university uh, that the rates can change. Um, but again, th this is all irrelevant. It doesn't matter because that's not part of the shroud. I, I said 
we can assume these assumptions are great. It's the issue of contamination or leakage that the shroud that applies to the shroud of Trin specifically. And here he's got so far the only thing he's really said is that he likes to attack my neutron flux. Oh, you know, Rucker's crazy, Mark Antonici, they're they're all crazy. This neutron flux or absorption hypothesis is pure nonsense. And then he thinks that refutes um, the fact that the carbon-14 is unreliable. It, it doesn't, though. The, the arguments, there are three arguments I presented to establish that the carbon-14 is unreliable. Number one, they only took one sample as opposed to multiple samples from different areas to help mitigate against the contamination problem. Alan himself admitted, yeah, that's, that's a problem. Um, I don't know how big of a problem he thinks it is, but at least he admits they should have took multiple samples. He, uh, so he is honest on that front. Second problem, the location of the sample has been documented, scientifically documented, and was known to the carbon-14 scientists at least two years prior with the Turin protocols in 1986 to be a problematic area. I provide, I provide, you know, I, the Ray sample. Remember, I discussed that there was cotton, which was found in the Ray sample in 1973, non-representative to the rest of the cloth, and known to be the case. I, I also provided you a sample uh, source in part two called "Weighing All the Evidence." If you go to the 25-page article on page three, they they also mention um, there there is a the blue quad mosaic image evidence showed that there was multispectral false color images reflecting the surface chemical composition of the area where this carbon-14 sample was taken from was non-representative to the rest of the shroud. Uh, what's more, ultraviolet fluorescent images were taken by Vern Miller, and it showed that the area they took this sh uh, sample from for carbon-14 dating was darker than that in that region than what was presented with the the uh, the from the other areas of the shroud cloth. Yeah, ba based on these analyses, it was scientifically documented that this is a bad location to take the shroud because it, the shroud sample for dating because it was non-representative to the rest of the shroud. I don't know if Alan would is going to agree with that or what he's going to say to that, but that's scientifically documented. I've provided the proof or the sources that I use for those claims, um, that's in part two podcast yeah. on the, it's the D source where it's, it's the weighing all the evidence says, and, um, yeah, page three of that 25 page article. So, and then thirdly, we have Rob Rucker's part one and part two articles on the statistical analysis using that chi-square, uh, test that the radiocarbon scientists themselves used, uh, to make their conclusions and using the data the carbon scientist data, um, scientists provided, he statistically proves that there is a 98.6% probability that some kind of systematic bias was at play. Obviously, Rucker thinks that's a magic solution, a supernatural neutron flux. And Allen and others take issue with this. Oh, this is pure nonsense. Fine. Irrelevant. Throw the neutron flux out. Throw all those speculative proposals or supernatural magic, throw those explanations out. You still got the problem. Rucker has proven that there's a 98.6% probability that some kind of systematic bias is throwing off the results that the carbon-14 scientists got. 
you have you can't dismiss that evidence. I don't care what the systematic bias was, proven beyond reasonable doubt that there was some kind of systematic bias, whether that's natural, supernatural, don't care. The points established, you can't rely on the 1988 carbon-14 dating results, and only a fool would feel confident in using that as proof or evidence that the Shroud is medieval. Okay, uh, finally, uh, Darren Lute, and I really like Darren. Um, I've interacted a lot with him on the comment boards um, on at, on uh, at the SNS website, and I, I really have a lot of respect for, for this guy's comments because, number one, he provides insightful counters. He seems to get the main points and, and focuses, zeroes in on the points of contention and says, well, you know, your historical argument here, I, I don't buy this. How, how do you know an artist couldn't have done this? And, he, you know, he, he zeroes in on, on the right areas or the, the places of contention for interaction. You know, he, he doesn't buy my, my conclusions. I, I, I get what he's saying. I, I don't buy what he's saying. I think it's more probable that, you know, for example, the prey codex with those L-shaped wounds, I don't think it's probable that those are just decorative. I don't think it's probable that the, sh- the sh- guy who made the shroud used that image, copied it, and then stabbed L-shaped holes into the shroud to copy the painting. It seems the opposite is the case. That prey codex was not an authoritative source in the first place. Neither was any of those coins or, or art icons or pictures. Why would someone using a burial shroud poke holes based on one non-authoritative image of Jesus? It seems less probable to me than the opposite of the guy who made the prey codex was copying the shroud. Also, if, if people did make did and make uh, the shroud image copying all of these art images, you know those all those odd features like the triangular shaped wound, the three sided box on the forehead, the transverse line across the throat, plus L shaped holes with no re- no known reason why someone would want to copy those elements. Bear, bear in mind, the shroud is the only object that has all of these weird things in one source. It's a burial shroud, so right away, okay, yeah, we can understand. People would have thought that this was the actual burial shroud of Jesus, therefore it was an authoritative representation. That's why these copyists are copying it in their paintings. But they don't include all the features. They don't include some of them. The shroud is the only source that's still around that has all of them uh, all in one. Plus, you'd have to say this artist copies, uh, was able to do all of the anatomical accuracies and invisible features of the blood stains, which is just impossible. Human beings don't have the eye-brain-hand coordination. Even modern forensic artists with basically cheating for them, giving them help on certain anchor points on how to draw their images, they couldn't represent, uh, recreate the shroud images. So it's impossible, not just improbable, but going further, adding in this, these elements of the anatomical and bloodstain accuracies, impossible, 0% chance that some artist drew the shroud images and, and gathered all the, you know, knew how the Roman weapons and techniques should look and how they would actually affect a human body, copied and was able to create medically impossible medical aspects that would have been impossible for him to have known about and we didn't even know about until the 19th or 20th centuries. Yeah, I'm sorry, I, I go with what's more probable and it just seems to me the simpler explanation uh, is that the shroud was this authoritative image that all of these other things were copying. So that that's my take there, Darren. Um, so yeah, just I think we'll finish off part six. That'll be, that'll be it for this time. 
Next time in part seven, we're going to finally get into image forming mechanisms, the first ordinary artistic hypothesis, and assessing that in light of the minimal relevant features of the shroud. And that's Walter McCrony's The Painting Hypothesis. This is the first shroud skeptical theory. You'll see conclusive proof this hypothesis is garbage. It was scientifically falsified, much to the chagrin of, uh, you know, desperate shroud skeptics like I'm sure Alan. Uh, I know, Alan, uh, you're probably foaming at the mouth right now. Um, you know, but given the presumptuous and boastful statements you like to make about the Shroud, uh, just I, I can't help egging you on a little bit there. So uh, it's done in friendship, done you know, done in good good t uh, faith there. So uh, yeah, that's what we have to look forward to next time. Thank you so much, everyone, and have a great day.